You are listening to the Social Vision Podcast, an adventure in Jewish mysticism. Based on the book, Social Vision, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's Transformative Paradigm for the World, by Philip Wexler, Ellie Rubin, and Michael Wexler. Chapter 3, The Social Constitution of Hasidism and the Divinization of the Cosmos. I'd like to welcome everybody back to the uh, SVP, or the Social Vision Podcast, as we call it. We're looking at the book Social Vision, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's Transformative Paradigm for the World. And if this is your first time joining us, we'll go back to the beginning. Don't start here, because this uh, stuff is dense and brilliant enough to start with that you don't want to start in the middle. And I'm not saying it's brilliant because I'm one of the authors. I give a lot of credit to my father, Philip Wexler, and Ellie Rubin, the mystical scholar who I wrote this book with. And my job was really just to try to let some of the book, uh, as Rabbi Menachem Schmidt would say, let some of the book be in English, even though it was written in English. And so that's what I'm doing here in this podcast, is translating it a bit into easier English. I don't know how good of a job I did getting it into English in the first place, but we'll let other people debate that. So right now we're in chapter three. And we've talked a lot about what can Jewish mysticism bring to the table? What can this ancient tradition bring to the table in the modern age to speak to the breakdown or the cultural chrysalis that we see taking place right now? I think we all know the old order is dead and a new one is trying to be born. And we're seeing, uh, we're talking about what are some possibilities that Kabbalah or Jewish mysticism or Hasidism or whatever you want to call it could bring to that party. So chapter three, the social constitution of Hasidism and the divinization of the cosmos. Well, what is that all about? Today, the library of Menachem Mendel Schneerson's published writings and oral teachings fills well over a hundred volumes. Yes, he was a big shot. But his very first publication, Hayom Yom, appeared in 1943 and continues to be singled out for special attention by those who hold him in esteem. It consists mainly of short aphorisms and anecdotes set out in a year-long calendar of daily readings. Not really an advent calendar, but uh, more of uh, um, one of those little daily things you could read in the bathroom. I shouldn't say that. In the not impartial judgment of his father-in-law, this slim volume is packed with pearls and diamonds of the greatest and best quality and is a true work of Hasidic or Jewish mystical culture. So what does that mean? Well, in this chapter... The Lubavitcher Rebbe, who is Jewish mysticism's most recent torchbearer, there have been many, speaks a lot about community, alienation, loneliness, and how, I mean, if there's one thing we're dealing with in the current culture, it's that, right? How do we deal with that from a Jewish mystical perspective? And the answer, from what I can tell, is a sort of a strange and interesting melange or combination of community on the lower plane, call it the terrestrial plane, community like other people, and community on the higher plane, in other words, um, a tether to the mystical or to God, quote-unquote. And whenever we use these terms, let's not get bogged down in the baggage. When we hear Torah, we mean wisdom. When we hear God, we mean higher power. When we hear Jewish people, we hear all people. So anyone listening, this isn't about strictly Judaism. It's about what Judaism can offer, bridge the gap into the secular uh, and mystical realm. So this is for everybody. But anyway, 
So the following anecdote cited in Hayom Yom encapsulates this conception with characteristic verve, this idea of community. The original Hasidim of Schneur Zalman of Liadi, one of the old gurus, once gathered together around 1784, or between then and 1787, and the topic of their discussion was that the Rebbe's innovation is that we are not alone. In the past, the Rebbe, the head of the academy or the scholar of genius, was alone, and the students were alone too. The path of Hasidism established by the Rebbe is the great and holy innovation that the Rebbe, the leader of the pack, is not alone, and the Hasidism, meaning the regular people, are not alone. It's interesting because, as we're going to see, there's a, a sort of a tension. Indeed, scholars have always understood that social questions were key to a proper understanding of the phenomenon we call Jewish mysticism or Hasidism, but time and again they found themselves unable to disentangle themselves from the perceived tension between Hasidism's mystical and social dimensions. How are we going to jive this God stuff into reality? This is a false dichotomy, however, and it largely depends on the unwillingness of academic scholars to take the indigenous ideas of Hasidism on their own terms, insisting on fitting them into the neat boxes imposed by modern disciplinary categories. Hasidism, or Jewish mysticism, provides theoretical models that are an alternative to sociology. So, yada, yada, yada let's dig a little bit deeper into what we're talking about. The originality of Hasidism lies in the fact that the mystics turned to the people with their mystical knowledge. But we are wrong to claim that the mystics had attained their spiritual aim prior to turning to the people. So this is where we start to get into it. In a lot of old conceptions, the mystical person was up there on the mountain, had achieved everything, and then maybe told the people about it, right? Came down from high, or maybe just hung out on the mountain sipping cappuccino. But the contrary is true. The spiritual or mystical aims of the Hasidic masters could not be attained in solitude, but only through being in the midst of the people. Same goes for all of us. This is precisely what set the emergent Jewish mystical movement apart from earlier mystical circles and traditions. What Shalom one of the mystics that we talk about a lot in social vision, regarded as a wondrous paradox, actually has a quite simple explanation. The mystical aims of Hasidism do not stand in tension with communal life. Jewish mysticism is fundamentally social. It is expressed collectively and is indeed an experience of collectivity. So when we're starting to think about alienation, right, we want to take community and tinge it with mysticism. It's like we have a big cauldron and we're mixing a soup with a big wooden spoon, and like we have today in society, but we haven't, it's like we haven't dropped in the bouillon cubes of mysticism. Most of us can attest that that's a little bit missing. And in chapter three, we go on to talk more about the, the Sadik, who is the leader of this community and how this these bouillon cubes of mysticism get dropped into the new paradigm and the crucial role of the Sadiq, meaning the rabbi, the leader, within the cosmic hierarchy, within the Jewish mystical paradigm, is to be the conduit through which the hierarchical distinction between heaven and earth is erased. So in the Jewish mystical tradition, the Sadiq, or the rabbi, or the spiritual guru, is a way of bridging heaven and earth, a way of bringing together all of us on the, I don't want to call it the lower realm, on the terrestrial realm with the divine. So it's the Sadiq or the rabbi himself, which is, you know, 
also needs to go into the stew. Maybe you could call it the chef of the bouillon cubes. And we talk a lot about that in chapter three, the role of the sadik. But I don't want to get into that too much now. You can look at that in the book. The Rebbe goes on to to get more specific about how all of this is accomplished. And it's a little bit complicated. Shocker. The Rebbe's mission statement, the three loves that are all one. Now we're getting into the nitty gritty. So if you need to have some coffee or um, put up your beach umbrella, now's the right time. I think I'll have some coffee. Ay, ay, ay. My girlfriend's been hocking me. They're doing construction outside. And now we got to talk about the three loves that are all one. Upon accepting the leadership of Chabad in 1951, Schneerson offered a self-described statement. And this was a big moment. The first thing people want to hear is a statement, he says. And the procedure is that it must contain something innovative, something provocative. I don't know if this is provocative, but if you want to hear a statement, the Rebbe said, and he refers to his father-in-law as the Rebbe, which is humble and ironic, said that there are three things. So here's the trick. Here's the uh, secret formula. There's the love of God. Okay, so don't hear that as God. Hear it as something bigger. The love of Torah. You can hear it as Torah or you can hear it as wisdom. And the love of the Jewish people, which you could just hear as people. So the love of a higher power, the love of wisdom or learning, curiosity, and the love of people. An interesting prescription, right? And these three things, he goes on to say, are actually all one. So it's impossible to distinguish between one and the other, for they are all one as a single essence. When one grasps hold of something that is a part of the essence, one grasps the essence in its entirety. Accordingly, everyone must know that when you grasp hold of the love of God or higher power, you can't just make do with that. One cannot make do with that, and one cannot grasp hold of that if you don't also grasp hold of love of the Torah and love of the people, love of wisdom and love of people. But on the other hand, if we begin with a love of people, which seems to be a logical commandment, one will eventually achieve the love of wisdom and the love of a higher power. This is the very interesting paradigm. Everything is connected and they're all the same. But the nuance is that if you want to reach the higher plane, you start on the lower plane, which is a little bit counterintuitive. And in this chapter, which, you know, in our podcast, we're not trying to reread the entire book, but in this chapter, you can really dig further into this sort of (laughs) axis of good, if you will, in which these three things are related. And again, so it's not enough, though, just to have community and not enough just to have people. In one section, the, the Rebbe says about relationships, right? Even insofar as they are superficially united regarding a specific endeavor, this too is not something that will last, since in their fundamental being they are separate from one another, and for each of them their own fundamental being and their other concerns are a greater priority and more important than this specific endeavor. And as soon as the specific endeavor will come into conflict with their own being, they will separate from one another and even the superficial fellowship will dissolve. So, just the people piece is not enough. Indeed, we have seen tangibly the case of many such fellowships, which apparently seem to be strong fellowships, thinking of marriage. And in the end, when some conflict transpired with the individual existence of the member, these fellowships fell apart and nothing remains of them. 
This superficiality can only be overcome, according to Schneerson, when interpersonal love is constituted vertically as well as horizontally. So again, it's complex and we need to really read it carefully on the beach to get it. But the, the basic module is that we have, if you're familiar with the Havdalah candle, right? A braided candle or the challah, a braided bread with various strands. We have to weave together, Schneerson's telling us, or Jewish mysticism is advising us in this new paradigm. We're weaving together a higher power, community and people. And when we talk about Torah or wisdom, I'm trying to think of what the best way to describe that is. There was a section in here about Torah, and it says, for many, this is the most difficult part of Schneerson's vision to swallow. Why is the Torah, along with its myriad commandments and associated laws, so essential? Isn't the socio-mystical axis enough? And the answer is no, it's not enough. To have the full candle, to have the perfect soup, we need some level of insight, awareness, learning, and intellect, the Torah. Let's just call that wisdom. And we need an element of interpersonal love, and we need an element of spiritual love. So you've got the basic formula, and we'll talk more about that in future podcasts, and more about that is available in chapter three. I encourage you to study it carefully, and you'll really come away with something. On that note, my girlfriend's yelling at me from downstairs, they're doing construction outside, so welcome to the, the lower realm and the higher realm, right? But a couple more minutes, if you have them, and let's turn to something slightly lighter, a little Danielle Steele novel here, that also goes to, again, we're talking about the social constitution of Hasidism. What does that mean? How does this Jewish mysticism actually play out in reality? And one of the big things amongst the Hasids, amongst uh, Jewish mystics you may or may not have heard of, is called Verbringen. F is in Frank, A-R-B is in boy, R-E-N-G-E-N. Now, Verbringen, well, I'll tell you what Verbringen is. Having discussed the theoretical basis of Schneerson's socio-mystical vision of Jewish mysticism or Hasidism, and of his own role as a leader, we now turn to the primary practice by which he realized that vision in the social life of his community. So how are we going to get all of this stuff bubbling up from his point of view as the leader, namely the Verbringen? Verbringen is a Yiddish word that means gathering, but which has the more specific connotation of spending quality time in good company and lively conversation. Now, this is one of the things people don't understand about Hasidic people, and you see these some of these people, you may be one of them, you may see them on the street with the black hat and think that they're very um, tightly wound and this and that. No. Hasidism and Jewish mysticism and Kabbalism, it's all about joy. You should go to one of these for bringings. It's a party. And there's nothing wrong with that, which is one of the things I love about this model. It's not all buttoned up. In Chabad Hasidism, or Jewish mysticism, which is Chabad Hasidism is the closest thing we have to it right now in practice, this meaning is given even greater specificity. The Fabringen is not merely a social occasion in a secular and recreational sense, but rather a sacred institution that plays a central role in the cultivation and absorption of the socio-mystical ethos of Hasidism. The Fabringen has been succinctly described by the ethnographer Damien Seton based on research that he did. And much of the same thing can be absorbed, uh, observed in Chabad communities the world over. So this is a guy from the outside getting a window into one of these parties. The ritual consists of gathering where people sit around at a table and put forth three central components. Nigunim, which means melodies. 
Mashke alcohol. <clears throat> There's nothing wrong with a little schnapps. And wisdom, the words of the Torah. The nigunim are religious melodies. The singing of nigunim involves a performance where specific parts of the body are utilized. The actors balance back and forth, elevating their voices and beating the table with their fists or open hands, manifesting the passionate dimension of religiosity. The nigunim that are sung in the Farbringens are purely melodic without any lyrics. I mean, these are like um, spiritual, uh, I don't know what to call it, upheavals, parties, fun, joy, schnapps. Where do we see that incorporated into the modern, current paradigm? I mean, going to the bar and doing Jägermeister shots, uh, it's not exactly the same thing. Naftali Lowenthal, another scholar, has framed the Farbringen within his larger theorization of Chabad's tradition of communication and of Chabad's mission to communicate the infinite. So inside of these parties, there is like a weird connection to the infinite and divine. It's like a spiritualized like house party. One more word on the Fabringen. We need a little Fabringen now after all that three love Havdalah soup stuff. In a treatise on interpersonal discourse penned by the aforementioned fifth Rebbe of Chabad, Rashab, the centrality of this kind of exchange is underscored. It is a foundation and great fundamental that they should connect and speak to one another. For you cannot insist that the truth is in accord with your own intellection when you hear the insight of your friend and you truthfully debate one another. Thereby, they come to the truth of the matter. So, it is in these kind of concerts that further truth is unfurled. And in Social Vision, uh, Wexler, Rubin, and Wexler say, at first blush, the Fabringen might seem to be a Hasidic version of the philosophical banquet described in Plato's Symposium. But alas, I think we've uh, probably had enough to eat today. Jeez, this is some heavy stuff. The last part of the chapter, 3.4, communicative interchange and the divinization of the cosmos. And this isn't as complex as it sounds. This echoes Abraham, and we'll start to wrap it up here. This echoes Abraham J. Heschel's formulation in his classical volume on the biblical prophets. The main task of prophetic thinking, and we may add prophetic speech, is to bring the world into divine focus. And that's the whole name of the game here. It is interesting to note, as a final little point, we have this idea of the three prongs of life, right? Love or people, wisdom or self-improvement, awareness, some sort of practice, if you will, and a higher power, right? This is our little formula. And it's just interesting to note, the Rebbe was very keen on how to disseminate. How are we going to get this out there, right? How is this transformative paradigm going to take hold? Because it's only me and you and two other, uh, you know, crazy people in Lithuania who are together right now listening to this. So he says, uh, there's a lesson to be learned from the fact that we, and they did this one time and more than one time, made a satellite event at the onset of Hanukkah. And in such a way that whoever wishes, whether Jew or non-Jew, can set the television machine to witness how one single Jew has the ability to shed light upon the entire world such that it need not take any time for that light to arrive everywhere in the world. We just now saw that a child lit a single candle in a single location in the world, and in the same instant it was seen across the entire world, taking an unlit candle and making it luminous with the light of Torah and God's commandments. There's an old uh, story about the Rebbe saying that in the same way that the world can be ended by the push of a button, not to get morbid, the world can be illuminated with the push of a button. And he was way ahead of his time with 
uh, technology and green energy, and he has some ideas about incarceration, which we'll get to later. Right now, we're in the thick of the divinization of the cosmos. Later chapters get a little bit more practical. Just as the word of Torah, he says, can now inspire a person on the other side of the globe without a moment's pause, so charitable aid can be instantly transferred anywhere as soon as it is needed. Schneerson further emphasized that even where no technology is involved, a seemingly insignificant act can likewise be recast as an act of cosmic union. When a small child drinks a small glass of water and first blesses the one whom all is created by his word, that bit of water is thereby connected with all the manifold things that are created by God's word, for they all depend on being used for a blessing. So little things that you can bring into the physical world will open up connection to the divine. Whether it's blessing a glass of water, whether it's a love for another, whether it's increasing your awareness and learning. These three pillars replace what the material world has taught us to be important in the new paradigm. It doesn't mean we don't have to make a living, right? We're still stuck on this game board, as I like to sometimes say. You know, we can't get off the Monopoly board, but perhaps we can play this game differently. Differently.